When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing, live without a net on the YouTube, on YouTube and also on the Real Vision platform. Today, I'm joined by Dave Floyd of Aspen Trading. But first, before we get started, I'd like to thank our friends and our sponsor today, Arca. If you're not familiar with Arca, they're an excellent asset management firm that is consistently investing and innovating in the world of digital assets. Coming on Tuesday, May 25th, they are hosting their fourth FO256 conference. Our very own Rao Powell will be the keynote speaker, plus some great guests, including Tom Jessup, Fidelity Assets President, Andrew Peel, Morgan Stanley's Head of Digital Assets, Subankar Singh, Morgan Stanley's, uh, excuse me, uh, Bank of New York Mellon's Head of Blockchain, Ari Paul, Blocktower Capital's Chief Investment Officer, and Meltem Demirs, CoinShares Chief Strategy Officer, and many others. This is going to be an all-day event bringing sophisticated investors together, uh, and we really hope you can join us there. With that said, let's go to Dave Floyd. Dave, welcome to Real Vision. Hey, thanks, Ash. Appreciate, appreciate coming back. We appreciate you joining us. Uh, Dave, you're one of our favorites on this platform. You've been a friend of Real Vision and a friend of this show for a very long time. Uh, now that we've gone live, we're increasingly reaching a larger audience. For people who may not know what you do at Aspen Trading, tell us a little bit about what you do there. Well, I've got, I've got real good at that answer over the years, because when you talk to people at you know cocktail parties or your, even your in-laws, it, it's the most difficult question to answer. Um, essentially, what I do is um, I've been a trader for you know 26 odd years now. So I essentially do trade my own book, manage a little bit of money. But the main thing that we do here at Aspen Trading is I provide my ideas as well as trade recommendations to you know retail and institutional clients around the world. I mainly focus on the FX pairs, the majors, and then the S&P futures and 10-year notes. So really small universe, uh, mainly a swing trader, although I'll day trade the S&Ps um, you know, when applicable. Yeah. By the way, for people who don't know what swing trading means, give a little bit of context, a little bit of background. Yeah, yeah I think I'm glad you asked that because everybody has a, a different version. I don't know if there's a completely you know, agreed upon uh, basis for it, but my understanding or my belief is that swing trading is a trade that lasts on average several hours, maybe a few days. Um, and that's a, that's a sweet spot that I like to be in. I'm not into you know, longer term macro investing. I like to kind of uh, pick my spots you know, let the trade ride and then, you know, get out, you know, a few hours or a few days later, or if it's in terms of the S&Ps, I, I might intraday trade them, uh, which would probably put me more in the definition of a scalper uh, as it relates to the S&Ps. Yeah. Talking of which, uh, incredible day to have you here. Uh, NASDAQ flat, uh, but the Dow off 
470 points. That's the worst performance on the day uh, since February of 2020, obviously, uh, at the depths of the crisis. When you look at these markets, Dave, what do you see? Well, me personally speaking, a long overdue correction, and I don't mean correction in the classic sense, but you know, some degree of two-way price action with more of a bias to the downside. Um, you know, I think most people that look at the markets agree they've gotten a little bit frothy. Um, I'm not really sure it's the beginning of something you know dire, but you know, again, that as a swing trader, you don't try to make these long-term forecasts. You're trying to look just ahead a little bit, you know, kind of at the end of your nose, where you've got a higher degree of doing that forecasting. But you know, from a trading perspective, these markets are are welcome because you get that extremely robust intraday price action. I mean, we were just about at 4,200, or just under 4,100. I take that back. Just under, yeah, just under 4,100. Um, in the S&Ps, we come ripping back to 40, 4,140 for the close. I mean, yesterday we we're above 4,200. So tremendous, tremendous range. And I think what you're seeing here is you're probably getting a lot of the looser hands to kind of get knocked out a little bit here because we've just been had a one-way path moving higher for the last you know, several months, basically. Yeah. And is that a function of people, these people who are getting pushed out of the trade? Is that a function of technical factors? Uh, is that a function of some of the price action we've seen and getting whipsawed? What's happening there? It's probably a combination of everything. I mean, I've gone through so many of these cycles over my career. It's generally a function of people get so used to one thing happening, meaning incrementally higher prices each and every day. You know, poor entries are just simply, you know, band-aid and over, so to speak, and the next day you wake up and prices are higher than where your entry was. This is the first time we've had, first time in a while, where we've seen prices actually move significantly lower. So I think you've probably got some, you know, late to the party uh, entrance and on the long side, whether it be in crypto, high tech, or even just, you know, basic old, you know, industrial names. And when that when that type of stuff happens, if you're, especially if you haven't done this before and you haven't gone through a lot of these cycles, it, it's pretty unsettling. And suddenly, you know, you're kind of just throwing everything out because it looks as though the world's about to end, um, which yeah. doesn't doesn't appear to be at this point in time. But we'll get to that later in the conversation. Yeah. Let's hit through some of the closing numbers here real quick. Uh, Dow Jones Industrial Average uh, settling uh, at the close at 34,269. That's off one spot, 36 percent or 474 uh, about points. Uh, S&P 500, 41 52 on the close off 36 points, closing down about uh, minus 0.88. Uh, and NASDAQ relatively flat on the day, uh, off about, uh, off about uh, one, uh, one tenth of 1% uh, and, uh, and uh, closing at 13,389. The VIX, we should say, is up above 2021, 84 final number on the VIX, up 11%. Yeah, I think the NASDAQ was really the key thing today. I mean, when I woke up this morning, pre-market, ARC was under 100 bucks. It was at 98 bucks. It was a pretty good support cluster down there. And, you know, one of the things that you learn over time is that when sentiment gets too skewed in one direction, it typically goes the other way. Again, I'm not stating anything earth-shattering there, but the, what I saw going across Twitter this morning was it's going to be a bloodbath. It's going to be this. And part of me is like, hmm, got this big cluster of support here in ARC and in Tesla. You know, kind of the, the bellwethers for some of this frothiness that we've been seeing, and then we see uh, Arc ended up ending up on the day almost two percent ends up at 
basically 106. So um, I'm not saying arcs out of the water, uh, out of the out of the storm yet, so to speak, but um, an impressive rebound, and that typically does happen when you get everybody skewed towards the downside. Nobody was bearish two days ago, but now everybody's bearish, and then they rip them back, and that's just the way the markets are. They're cruel, and unless you've got your head about you and you you know your levels, they're gonna they're gonna treat you badly all the time. Now, talking about knowing these markets, you mentioned uh, Arc Innovation ETF. You mentioned Tesla. What are those signaling to you? Why do you watch them and why are they significant in this market? Well, I kind of look at them as really no different than some of the bellwethers. I mean, I'm dating myself here, but I actually traded full time, which I still do obviously now, back in 1999 through 2000. So I've gone through cycles like this before where uh, my friend Jesse Felder, who's also a really good friend here uh, of Real Vision, wrote a great piece about you know how people start believing things that aren't true. and we're just starting to see a lot of that, and I'm trust me, I'm getting to your to your uh, to your question. But when you when you start to get um, everybody kind of coming up with all these reasons why you should be buying stocks at ridiculous levels that have no earnings, et cetera, et cetera, it really pays to look at those stocks because what happens in those stocks ultimately permeates to the rest of the market. And I saw a great stat today, and if I can read it back to you, I think it puts our whole conversation in context here. Yeah. Um, this is in terms of ARC. 55% of the lifetime flows are now underwater in ARC. And that's, uh, and most of them came in after November of 2020. So that level, of course, is now being tested and we are below. But here's the good news. A lot of people don't, over, you know, a lot of people forget. For the last 12 months, ARC is still up 78%. So if you were an early adopter, you're still looking great. Right. Well, let's be honest. Most people aren't early adopters. They're late adopters. It's human nature. So, um, you know, my take on all of this is I want to be watching ARC. I want to be watching Tesla because ultimately what happens there, I think, can potentially, not always, but can potentially then permeate to the rest of the market. I don't think we're quite there yet. Not enough people, you know, screaming in the streets about, you know, shut the markets down. I got to get out and all that kind of stuff. But <laughs> days like this remind you of just how unforgiving they can be if you are, you know, kind of sloppy. Yeah, very well said. You know, back in, I guess it was April of uh, 2000, uh, I was one of the uh, young guys uh, actually at Credit Suisse at the time. And I remember going up to the trading floor uh, that day because I was thinking this is this is a day that I'm not going to want to remember, commit uh, to uh, understand and to never forget. And I think for people who have been through a few of these cycles, uh, this is something that uh, that once you've seen it, you never forget it. You don't. They're great life learning experiences. And if you kept your head about you during the silliness, it's really easy to keep your head about you when you get thrown these gyrations, which are actually incredibly well-suited you know, to shorter-term traders. I mean, today being an example, just crazy price action up and down no mystery as to where a lot of these rallies and sell-offs took place from. You know, it's all about levels. It's all about knowing where the footprints of the larger players were. So when these moves happen seemingly randomly, many times they're not random. They, they are occurring for legitimate reasons. Yeah. So Dave, these are the days you live for. Walk us through what it's like uh, when something like this happens, how you think about the setup, how you think about your reaction, how you structure things. What's your general take when you see volatility start to move and you know this is a day for you to play in these markets? 
Well, yeah, today and yesterday were definitely those types of days where you have a lot of opportunities presented to you. It's a it's always a question of do you have the conviction to to stick those trades on because they usually don't come in the most obvious way. You know, the markets are ripping lower and suddenly you're like, you know, I should be buying here and it's the hardest thing in the world to do. Um but normally it's the right thing to do and trust me, I missed many trades today. I got you know, I got torn up a little bit on a few trades, but net net days like today are, are where you can make a fair chunk of money. Now, granted, shorter term trade, you know, most of my trades probably lasted on average five, maybe 10 minutes in the S&P, sometimes even, you know, 30, 40 seconds, it just depending on how the trade unfolded. But to get to kind of the root of your question, it's all about knowing the levels that you want to be keeping an eye on, having those levels front and center, watching the tape, and just focusing on that, you know, it's not a day where you're trying to find out what's going on on this message board and what stocks are trading over here. It's like I always am. I'm focused on just a few things and getting intimate with the price action. Yeah. What are those few things that you focus on? In terms of instruments traded or just in terms of indicators or both? Uh, both. I mean, what are the instruments you're looking at and then how do you view them? And what are the things that you regard uh, as absolutely essential? I know that you're very good. Uh, we've had a couple of these conversations before at filtering out the noise and focusing on the signal that you need to see. Well, the easiest way to filter out the noise is to keep your universe really limited. Um, I don't really, It's again, it doesn't mean that I don't look at you know stocks like ARK, but I'm not trading them. I'm just keeping an eye on them. What's the net change? Are they up or down on the day? What's happening overall? But for me, my, my universe is super small. And it's the same every day. S&Ps, 10-year notes in terms of futures, euro, Aussie dollar, Kiwi dollar, euro sterling. And that's really about it. Maybe CAD yen once in a while. Um, much more than that, I can't keep track of everything. And it's really hard. The other thing, too, is you, you, you have to know what market's going to work or not what market, what instrument's going to work based on the market. On a day like today where the S&Ps are moving around like crazy, that's about the only thing I can really focus on. FX was kind of a kind of dead. Ten-year notes were pretty dead, although they're sitting on a big support level. So it's whatever the market environment is dictates where you go in your tool chest. Uh, well, tool chest isn't the right way, but in terms of what I can trade. On a day like today and more than likely tomorrow, it's going to be just S&Ps for me. Um, if it gets quieter and we start getting more swing trading setups, then it's back to notes, back to some of the currency bears. Yeah. So that's how I kind of keep, you know, keep, uh, keep my eye on the ball, so to speak. That's plenty to keep an eye on. And as long as you don't get distracted from whatever your core instruments are, you'll be able to navigate the markets pretty well. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah. I know you tend to focus on these uh, shorter term trades. Uh, I'm curious, though, when you're talking about currency pairs, to what extent uh, do you look at the daily news cycle, maybe in the morning? Uh, before you start trading at noon sometime during the day, just to check in to see if there's any uh, kind of major fundamental news that's moving markets? Um, by and large, I'm aware of what some of the headlines are. You know, I'll look on Bloomberg and see what's going on there. But by and large, I'm not usually looking 
to make any trades based on what's happening. I, I want to be aware of when a number is coming out, of course, you know, like a non-farm payroll or Fed, Fed, you know, Fed governor or certainly a Fed um, meeting release or a press conference. But I don't live and die by the news headlines. Uh, and, that, and that's a completely different way to trade. And there's a lot of guys and gals out there who do that quite well. It just right. doesn't factor into me. I, I kind of fall into the old mindset of uh, price action will kind of tell you what you need to do. It's not, it's not up to me to interpret the news. Uh, the one thing I try to remind myself of all the time, but sometimes fail at is I'm here to observe price action, not perceive it. And I think you could say the same thing about the news. One person sees a great headline and somebody else sees a crappy headline and they've got more firepower. Therefore, they ultimately win that. They win that contest. So I'd rather not get in the business of trying to intellectually parse what the data and what the data is. Usually the price action will kind of let me know what the market thinks about it because market knows more than I do. Right. It is interesting. People often spend time uh, sort of fixating on the news cycle, uh, but mm -hmm. it's interesting to hear just what you get from price. And also, I would imagine uh, you're looking at some other technical indicators of volume, for example. Yeah, I mean, that's where I that's where really uh, the rubber meets the road for me is price action. Um, you know, for me, knowing where lots of volume and lots of trades took place at certain levels throughout the day, kind of like a footprint is kind of how I use it. I mm. want to know that. I want to know what the footprint was on this instrument, you know, yesterday, two weeks ago, a month ago, you know, three, you know, three months ago or on a quarterly basis. Those are going to be the guideposts. And the reason I like that is that that's objective measurements. You can't argue with it. This is what happened. This is how much traded at that price. And this was the result, or in terms of the direction, this is how prices reacted. There's nothing to be subjective or get creative on. It is what it is. And that uh, that's one more thing that helps me because it's so easy for us to kind of get sucked into a bias and have an opinion about something. And sometimes you want to have an opinion, but by and large, you, you kind of want to be agnostic. You just want to look at what's happening and go with the flow, which is, you know, like I say, observe, not perceive. Right. That's very well said. You know, one of the advantages, Dave, of doing these live is we get uh, all kinds of terrific questions coming to us from uh, from our subscribers and from folks on YouTube. Oh, cool. Very yeah, cool. many, uh, and there are people are very knowledgeable about markets uh, who watch this show, and we're very fortunate to have these great questions. Uh, here's one that comes to us from uh, Tom Tom, who always has great questions. As you trade these different asset classes, uh, which asset classes, if any, are harder to trade? How do you think about them, and how would you rank them in your head? <laughs> uh, there's no doubt the S and P's are the hardest. It, it's it's brutal, uh, but it's also it's also the market where you've got the most players, presumably, um, with very different very different incentives, so to speak, or let's say uh, objectives. Um, but at the same time, when you get in sync with them, they reward you very nicely. But you know, S and P's are hard, no doubt about it. Um, so I put them at the top of the list. I love trading ten year notes. They're they're very stodgy. For the most part, although they can move, um, but I really like trading them because they're very technical and they don't move. You know, in the S and P's, you know, you're up or down five points literally in the blink of an eye. Uh, whereas the the Treasury notes, they trade a little bit more gentlemanly, you know, so to speak. You know, they kind of move in a very deliberate manner, and and I do like that. I do, but there's not always trades in ten-year notes. So you you know, if you're relying solely on that, you know, you're going to spend a lot of time snoozing at your desk. Um, currency pairs, you know, I, again, very technical. I like the way they trade, but, you know, the volatility in currency has just been abysmal for quite some time. And um, it's hard to kind of go to the well 
as often as we used to on those or as I used to. But um, I would probably, you know, I'd probably put 10-year notes and currencies in the same boat, meaning they're a great swing trading vehicle. They trade quite technically. Uh, but getting follow-through sometimes in, in FX, at least in recent years, has, has been challenging, no doubt about it. Yeah. Talking of which, uh, you also mentioned the bond year market 10-year note. Uh, obviously, some action there today. Uh, what are your observations about what's happening and, and what uh, is your positioning? Well, I do have a position in 10-year notes. and I'm, I'm going to talk my book here. So <laughs> hopefully people out there with a bigger book than I do can help me out here. Um, and actually, I'm just recently long. But um, 132.14, 132.18, I've got that as a pretty solid zone on a quarterly, I'm sorry, on a monthly basis as well as a weekly. So some good overlap across those timeframes. Um, I think if we get much below 132.12, I think that the trade's null and void. I don't have to give it much below there to say that I'm wrong, because if we if we do fall below that level in 10-year notes, I think we kind of crisscross all the way down to the high 131s. I don't need to hang around for that. So for me, there's actually a low risk, meaning that there's you know nine or 10 ticks that I that I can let it go against me to know that I'm wrong. But I've probably got you know 25 or 30 ticks to the upside, so I like the risk reward. So yeah, I'm long at 132.15 and a half. We'd close at 132.14. Yeah, what did it was the action like there today? How did you feel in terms of the volume, in terms of the uh, in terms of the action in general? In, in notes or just in the market? In the notes that you were just uh, they were they were abysmal. I mean, it's just it's like watching paint dry. I, I just looked over at my quotes on notes every once in a while. I'm going to pull them up right real quick over here. Yeah, we basically traded in a like a seven tick range the whole day. We went from like 132.13 to 132.17. Not much you can do there, but we are sitting on some good support. Now, whether or not the market's going to want to hold that, it's probably going to depend on some of the CPI numbers tomorrow. So yes, I am, to go back to your other question, I am acutely aware of what's going to happen tomorrow, but I don't have an opinion. And if I'm wrong, you know, I'll probably probably take one, take one for the team tomorrow. But uh, but if I'm right and the inflation numbers come out where the market likes them, you'll probably see 10-year notes rip pretty good. Yeah. You mentioned cryptocurrency at the top of the show. Uh, mm -hmm. Bitcoin, obviously, Ethereum on a tear, trading over 4,000 yeah. now. Uh, Doge still up over 50 cents. These markets are very active and moving. Um, yeah. How are you thinking about that? Are you playing in those markets? And what are your view of them? I don't play in them. Um, Hasn't been my thing, probably won't be my thing, but I do watch them for the same reason I watch ARK and Tesla, because I think it's indicative of what's happening. Hmm. I've got some very anecdotal evidence of what's happening out there. We had some guys come to our house yesterday. They're doing out, out, uh, inside and outside window cleaning. Really nice guys. They're talking about all the cryptocurrencies they own. And I'm saying, hmm, that's interesting. Uh, you got people who are hearing from their mom. What's about, what's this dog coin? I mean, I'm not exaggerating dog coin or dogecoin whatever they don't know what it's pronounced as so again i go back and see that as anecdotal evidence that a lot of people not and it's not a judgment a lot of people who don't have any financial or trading or investing experience are looking and or investing in these things and they're kind of acutely unaware of what the risks are and they may make money there's a lot of people who've made a lot of money in these and you know great for you um but sometimes you step in at the wrong time and it can end pretty badly. I'm not saying that will happen, but you know, that's kind of my view on crypto. I, I don't know much about it. I know Raul is the, you know, certainly the expert at real vision on that. I look at it more as an indicator for my for my day-to-day -day trading. 
Yeah, it is interesting. It's, it's sort of momentum giveth and momentum taketh away. Uh, there's so much money being made uh, that I feel like it's just pulling people into those markets, especially with things like Doge, where there's no obvious use case. I mean, again, with cryptocurrency, because they're so new, uh, because there's so much uh, price action happening there right now, because they're appreciating so quickly, it's really impossible to say that there won't be a use case at some point in the future. But when you look at it today, when you look at what Dogecoin can be, what you can do with the coin today, you know, the real answer is sell it back to someone else at a higher price tomorrow. You know, with, without sounding like it's a harsh term, it's not meant like that, but that's what they call the greater fool theory. It's like, I'm going to buy it for 20 and I hopefully I'll sell it to somebody at 25. Um, and again, that's great. Yeah. Um, but I remember this happened when I was a kid. My mom had all these beanie babies. I'm like, mom, get, and actually I wasn't a kid. I was probably early, might've been in college. I'm like, mom, get rid of these stupid things and make some money. Oh, no, 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 it'll be same thing. And again, I'm not saying it's not a blanket statement for crypto. I'm sure there's some value in there. I'm not an expert on it. But by and large, most of these things are just, you know, digital, whatever you want to call them. There, there is no store of value. It's a perceived value. And that's fine. Just know that that perceived value can switch in nanoseconds. Yeah, exactly. You know, one of the things that's interesting to me about Dogecoin is that Dogecoin has some of the smartest players in the space shaking their heads and scratching their heads, not really understanding where this is going. I mean, I've had terrific guests on who can make really articulate cases for why they believe in Bitcoin as a longer term store of value play, mm -hmm. uh, as a pristine collateral play, as a potential payments rail play. Uh, at some point in the future, they'll tell you about Ethereum and smart contracts and all the things that are happening there. And when you ask them about Doge, they just shrug. I mean, there's just right now, today, could change tomorrow, but right now there's just no use case. Yeah. Well, you can make the same argument with some of the, you know, some of the probably the recent IPOs, you know, again, slightly different. But again, same thing. People buy things like Jesse Felder's article from last weekend. People say things that they know are not true, not not in a, in a, a you know, a vicious or, or mean spirited way, but they've bought into it. They have bought in hook, line and sinker that this is, you know, legit. And, um, you know, facts get obscured by perhaps, let's say, you know, perception or, or desire to, to have a particular outcome. And yeah. that's fine. It, it, it will work but when the music stops. And at some point, Mark, the, the music always stops. Um, you know, a lot of people will get clipped, uh, but that's how markets work. They'll clean out the inefficiencies, although we don't quite do it as like we used to, given that the Fed's always in the market, but that's a completely different topic. Um, yeah. But it but will happen. The Fed and also Congress with stimulus checks. Yeah, it's... I, I, I can only imagine what it's like in New York, but I know here in Bend, Oregon, of all places, you know, it's a sleepy little bend. Um, it's impossible for people to find workers to come to work. I mean, yeah. it's insane. They're paying a signing bonus at a local restaurant here, 2,500 bucks to be a server. And that's not a joke. Yeah. Yeah. I had a, a friend of mine who's in the construction industry in Florida uh, tell me that uh, they're not taking drug tests anymore. Because they're, they're just, you know, you we can just don't fog care. a mirror, come to work for us. Exactly. Right. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> extraordinary. By the way, Bend is a desert, isn't it? Is that? Uh... Well, 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 no, it's a high desert. Okay. So no cactus here. Uh, <laughs> plenty of pine trees. So, you know, it's your, we're at 3,500 feet. So we're up there. Um, but it's what they call the high desert. We're certainly on the arid side of the Cascades, but we get a lot of sun. We get a ton of snow in the winter. Get the, we got everything. We got four seasons here. The problem with Bend is that everybody else is moving here too, and it's changing the, the tone of the town quite a bit. And not not all of it for the good, a lot of it for the good though. 
That's the challenge of living in an incredibly beautiful place, Dave. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these are first-class problems. Worrying about how many people are going to move to my town. (laughs) Here's a question that comes to us from Lee, and it's about volume. And the question is, uh, how do you track volume of large players? And so more generally, how do you think about volume uh, when you assess uh, the impact on the trades? Well, I'm I'm glad that's a great question because I want to clarify. It's not that I know that that volume, let's say, is from some large hedge fund or, you know, Goldman Sachs. It's impossible to know where the volume happens, but you do know where the volume is. I mean, it's obvious. There's a ton of volume at that price at that time. That happened again, you know, two days prior. Huh, that's probably a key level. And you can you can chart these things. It's not a matter of trying to manually keep track of it. But volume, you know, leaves its track. Price action leaves its track. And, and you know, that I do do a little bit of Elliott Wave, but that's more on the swing trade side. But you overlay that type of stuff on top of volume and price action, and you'll get a good sense of, you know, where the market wants to trade and how it may react to particular levels. So the, the clues are there. It's just a matter of, you know, mapping them out on your charts and then learning how to use them in the context of what's happening in the marketplace. You know, did we just shift on an intraday basis from a bearish to bullish bias? And if so, now we're leaning into that former support area, which is now resistance, or did we just go from bearish to bullish and now we're leaning into that former resistance area as now a support level? So you're always going through these scenarios of how's that level holding up in the context of what's happening? Oh, NASDAQ's moving lower, but we're sitting on support at the S&Ps. Hmm, that support level probably is gonna give way. And then now that support level becomes resistance. Yeah. You know, pretty basic stuff, but in the in the heat of battle, it's a matter of keeping track of those levels and knowing what you want to do with them. Yeah. You know, we have uh, folks who join us uh, from sort of all levels, uh, all places along this journey. For people who are relatively new, particularly to technical trading, give us a little 50,000 foot overview on Elliott Wave uh, and what significance it has and how you use it. Well, for the to, for you know to be clear, Elliott Wave is really more of a function for me from a you know my longer term my swing trading perspective. It helps me kind of put a framework around price action. Um, but in recent years, I've kind of migrated to kind of a hybrid method where I'm using some Elliott Wave as the objective, but let's say more subjective part of the process, mm-hmm. and relying more on trying to line up where where the market's finding those levels or where the levels exist in the market. If it happens to coincide with with my wave count, fantastic. But on a shorter term, like intraday basis, you know, I'm not using wave counts. There's no time to update your charts, and I don't think it would be as particularly useful on a short term basis. You know, really short term basis, it's all based on you know previous levels and high volume prints at those levels that are going to help me gauge where I'm going. So, you know, the best way to kind of conceptualize it's not quite the same, but you know, think of a market profile chart where you're getting to see where all the prices took place at various uh, levels and where where the, the most volume was done at each of those levels. You're, you're going to find out by looking at that, and that's just a good way to kind of conceptualize how I think about it is that's going to visually tell you these are, the, these are the areas where prices traded a lot of volume and therefore, and therefore those prices are likely to be significant the next time they're tested or when those ranges are broken. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah. Here's a question that comes to us uh, from Marty C. Uh, curious to hear Mr. Floyd's thoughts on CHF USD. This is the Swiss franc uh, pair. Uh, and particularly, he's, he's interested uh, in, in that and its relationship to gold, uh, if that's something that you think about. And he adds, I live in Europe and loaded up on Swiss gold ETFs, and I'm still not sure if I should own a larger percent of currency hedger ones, uh, currency hedge ones or not. Well, let me frame the frame the question with let's just say the dollar Swiss, meaning the currency pair, has owned me for the last month. It's really actually been quite quite a quite a dinger to my performance on the FX side. I've tried to get long dollar Swiss uh, three times now, and each time not worked out. So um, you might want to temper my response in terms of my recent track record, but. If you are a believer in reversion to the mean, I'm probably due for a winner here. So, uh, um, you know, it looks, I mean, at some point the dollar will move higher. But again, I, I'm not trying to be in the business of calling tops and bottoms. Um, but, you know, for, you know, for the last several months, you know, Swiss franc's been very strong relative to the dollar. And you know, as of right now, there's no reason for me to say, oh, no, no, you know, get rid of your Swiss francs. They're going to go down in value. Doesn't seem like it at this point. Seems like the Swiss franc wants to move higher relative to the dollar. Um, at some point, there'll be twists and turns along the way, but the, the trend is pretty established at this point in time. Yeah. Another question that seems to come up uh, quite a bit, I'm looking here at my questions list, is coming up at least two or three times, uh, is questions about gold. Are you watching gold prices? Do they inform what you do? Uh, and how do you think about it, if so? I watch gold from time, meaning I watch it every day, meaning I know where it's trading. Um, I like the price action in it currently, but I don't trade a lot of gold, but I mean, you know, again, I'm just looking at a daily chart here. I'm giving a very basic overview. I would say if we can probably get above, maybe I'm looking at the gold ETF. I'm not looking at the gold metal, but you know, get above 175, maybe in GLD, it could be interesting. Um, gold's probably going to be more a function really of the inflation numbers and probably overall what happens in the S and P's. It's reasonable to assume if we saw more weakness in the S&Ps, gold would move higher. But um, again, not my go-to asset class, so kind of tough for me to give uh, an answer that I think would be, um, you know, representative of, of what the what the, uh, the, the client's asking. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I made a side note on the S&Ps there. Everybody's all lathered up. I'm sure CNBC is running, you know, the bear market 2021 sequence tonight because the markets are weak. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I can't, I can't resist. The station drives me insane. But um, I think I actually think that we're probably more, you know, closer to finding a little bit of a, you know, tradable bottom in the S and P's in the next couple of days than we are at plummeting to, to to new lows. I mean, let's be honest. What's really changed since last Friday, other than the jobs number? Not a whole lot. There doesn't seem to be a catalyst out there that is going to, you know, compress PEs or uh, impair balance sheets of corporations or anything, not that I'm aware of at least. Um, and again, going by numbers and levels, you know, to me, 4082, 4095 on the S&Ps, I'm going to be looking at those levels if we get down there as potentially being a buyer. It doesn't mean I'm just going to blindly buy into them. It's all about context. 
But um, if we start to get down into those levels, I actually think that um, I don't think we'll get much below there. And we might not even go back there. I mean, we had decent close today at 4140. What I would be telling um, your viewers today is 4148 is really the key number on a short-term basis. We can hold above 4148, and we tried to into the close. Couldn't do it. We do that, I think we start to springboard back up towards 4200. Again, I'm talking you to you now as more of a intraday, slightly swing trading basis. Uh, right. We get back below 4130. We're probably going to go back and probe the lows and maybe test that 4095, 4082 area. That's how I'm conceptually coming up with tomorrow's game plan. Yeah, no, very interesting. Yeah, we're not doing the uh, gloom and doom. I was a CNBC reporter for a while, uh, and I still have lots of friends there. But let's just say I we do things a little bit differently. Real we do things, and again, I, they do a fine job. It's just too much rah-rah, too much rah-rah. <laughs> yeah. By the way, let me just jump in again uh, before the blinding sun comes into my face again and I can't read. <laughs> uh, coming up again on Tuesday, May 25th, uh, ARCA hosting their fourth annual FO256 conference. Our own Rao Powell will be there as the keynote speaker. Lots of great guests, Tom Jessup, Andrew Peel, uh, Sabankar Singh, uh, Ari Paul, Meltem Demirs, uh, many of whom are great friends of Real Vision who have been on the shows uh, many times. And uh, it really is an interesting place if you're looking for uh, for the kind of context that uh, institutional investors think about, a great thing to check out. Um, Dave, I can't believe how much time we've, how fast time has gone. It we've just fast. blown through it on it this. Fast. Yep. So much, uh, I mean, such a perfect day to have you on in terms of the action that we had and great insight and analysis. Uh, what are some of the big picture thoughts you'd like to leave our viewers with as we come to a close here today? I think the big picture thought that, hang, and again, I'm not trading for the big picture, meaning I'm not placing bets with my big picture in mind, but nonetheless, you got to have some stories in your mind. And again, I, that might sound like a contradiction. I always said, observe, not perceive, but yeah. there's a fine line. You've got to have an opinion about certain things so that when they happen, or if they happen, you can react accordingly. I think the big thing is is the inflation debate. Um, I think, um, God, I can't remember the gentleman's name. He's over at Guggenheim, uh, Scott Menard. I think he saw. I think he had the best insight on it. And whether he's right or not, I don't know. But he said, you know, this inflation will be transitory because of the way he sliced and diced it in terms of lumber prices are only up because there's mill capacity that'll be brought brought back online. There's not a supply shortage of the lumber itself, just in the ability to mill it. Um, right. So that's the big thing. I mean, let's be honest. If rates were to get ripping to the upside. That kind of destroys the thesis for especially for tech and tech investing. And I yeah. think that's kind of maybe some of the, the worries that are going through the market right now. So that would be the big thing that I'm trying to keep an eye on. Tomorrow's CPI number will be uh, certainly one to look at. But again, you know, CPI published through the BLS is, is a tough read because there's so many adjustments. They do this and that and the other thing. I know for me personally, I imagine it's the same for everybody on here. Prices are going up. You know, I see it in our wallet or in my wallet. For sure. um, but the CPI may something say something very muted. But if you you know, go beneath all the gobbledygook, well, that doesn't mean anything to me. If I'm spending more money out of my wallet. I don't care what the CPI number says. Yeah. Uh, but the market will care about it. So we'll have to pay attention to that tomorrow. So I think that's the big, the number one thing that I'm looking at. And again, if the S and P's were to get weak at some point in the year, I think that would be obviously, um, obviously that's newsworthy. But again, that changes things dramatically. That that changes investing and trading themes literally overnight. Doesn't feel like we're there yet, but man, that could happen. Yeah. 
Boy, are we noticing it, especially on food. It's something that's just, there's clearly a move on food prices uh, yeah. here in New York and around the country. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, gas prices are, and now you've got that situation on the East Coast due to the pipeline. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if prices have gone up, but you certainly can't get gas in some places. It's going to take another week or two for that, that situation to be righted. Yeah, and it's it's definitely a, a, a question about the capacity. I mean, obviously, we've just had a the Biden administration cancel one of the major pipeline projects uh, here in the United States, and and now you you see the impact of what happens when you wind up being supply constrained because of a technical transportation factor it can be really significant. Yeah, absolutely. So there's always something to keep an eye on. Um, it's just a question of what you want to kind of put off to the side and what you want to keep front and center. I, for me, it's an, it's the inflation issue. Yeah, I, you know, potentially lack of. We just don't know just yet. Yeah, you know, Stan Druckenmiller out uh, earlier this morning making some comments about this on CNBC, talking about precisely the points that you were making about the potential impact uh, of U.S. Treasuries and, and made the point uh, with some of his kind of bearish thesis around the bond markets. Uh, look, these markets on the equity side uh, have performed because during this crisis, uh, the companies, the largest cap tech companies in the world were the ones who benefited most uh, from the virtualization play, from the stay at home play, from the distance learning and working play. Uh, and what happens uh, when that starts to, uh, when that starts to ease off and there's a rotation trade back into uh, some of the cyclicals, for example. Exactly, and that's, that's happening on some level. It's not really something that I have a, a good grasp on, but that growth value, that, that could end up, you know, maybe the market doesn't move lower significantly, but there's a massive rotation from sector to sector, and that can be damaging in and of itself. Yeah, such an such an interesting point and an important one, David. It's always such a pleasure to have you. Appreciate it, Ash. It's always a good a good conversation. I really do appreciate the questions that came in too. That was that was fantastic part of the uh, of the interview. Yeah, we have just incredible audience, incredible questions. So thank you again so much for joining us, and thanks for watching, everyone. Thanks for participating, and thank you for the questions. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.